Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. Open with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Father God, we just thank you so much for this time, and I pray that you would use this time to um, instill in us a deeper and stronger, more binding trust in the scriptures as your word. God, that we would come away from our time this week and the next week um, with just a greater confidence in the scriptures. Lord, that you have spoken, that this is breathed out by you and and given by inspiration of God. And Father, we just thank you for that. I pray that you would anoint this time. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, teach us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so last week we began a series that we have called, Can We Really Trust the Bible? And what we're doing is addressing the question, why do we as Christians believe that the Bible is the word of God? Like, what good reasons do we have for this belief? What evidence is there? And in the course of this series, we're going to cover 10, maybe as many as 12 reasons that we have to have confidence in the Bible that it is the word of God. We covered the first three last week. Let me just bring you up to speed real quick on what those three were. And remember, these points are really aimed... They're really aimed towards us as believers. I'm not trying to teach at this point or convince an unbeliever to to have confidence in the scriptures as the word of God. I believe that there are many compelling reasons here for unbelievers. I'm actually addressing us as a church because there is teaching within the church uh, and, and movements within the church that would seek to undermine the authority of the scriptures. That, ah, they're kind of hit or miss um, you know, man's thoughts about God, you can't really take it all, you can't really trust it all in that sense. And that's coming from within the church. And so I'm speaking to Christians uh, in these points. And so what are the first three points that we covered? Why do we believe that the Bible is a word of God? What reasons do we have? Well, number one, last week we talked about the direct claims of the Bible. The Bible clearly claims to be the word of God. This is not a, a teaching that we're forcing upon the Bible from outside. The Bi- it's a teaching that comes directly from the Bible itself. The Bible claims to be the word of God. And so if you claim to have a high view of the scriptures and yet contradict what the scriptures say about themselves, those two don't jive. You can't say, oh yeah, I believe that, uh, you know, in the authority of scriptures. I have a high view of the scriptures, but I don't believe the scriptures. Do you see how silly that is? Okay, it's, I don't believe what the scripture says about itself. That'd be like looking at you, you saying, "Yeah, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm Lou, and uh, and I'm this old, and I go, oh, I, I like Lou. I have a high view of Lou, but I think he's a liar. 
You know, I think it's not true. Uh, so it's just weird. So the direct claims of the Bible. Why do we believe the Bible is the word of God? Because the Bible says it's the word of God and that the Bible originated in the heart and mind of God and not in the heart and mind of men. Okay? Number two, why should a Christian believe that the Bible is the word of God? Because of the perfect unity of the Bible. We're talking about 66 different books written over a period of some 15 to 1600 years by over 40 different human authors on three different continents, writing in three different languages, in different life circumstances, writing in different genres from different places and on and on and on, and yet tells one unified story of redemptive history. Give some illustrations on why that is just compelling evidence for the authority of the scriptures. And number three, because of the reliable transmission of the Bible. We saw last week that the Bible has not been passed down to us like a bad game of telephone, <laughs> where you whisper something in the first person's ear and they whisper it on and on and on. By the time you get to the last person, it's, it doesn't even recognize the original statement. That's the claim many people make about the Bible, and we've shown, we talked about this last week in, in detail, that that is not how the Bible's been passed down to us, that they took painstaking measures to ensure that the Bible was passed down to us with amazing precision and accuracy. The Bible has been transmitted to us reliably, and we can trust that what we have today is what was written and what was inspired by God. Today, we're going to cover three more reasons. So those are the first three reasons. Let's talk about number four. And again, I apologize in advance for this is going to be in some ways like, like you need a drink of water and I turn the fire hydrant on you, okay? So this is going to be like drinking from a fire hydrant because there's so much content and information, okay? Number four, why do we believe the Bible is the word of God? Number four, the historical accuracy of the Bible, the historical accuracy of the Bible. Take Luke, just for example, okay? Luke was a physician and a historian who wrote both the gospel of Luke, the gospel that bears his name, and he wrote the book of Acts. And when you put that all together, that's about a quarter of the New Testament that was written by this guy named Luke. His writings are actually a perfect example of the historical accuracy of scripture. So, the general consensus of both liberal and conservative scholars is that Luke is very accurate as a historian. F.F. F. Bruce of the University of Manchester in England, in a work titled The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable?, wrote this. Quote, one of the most remarkable tokens of Luke's accuracy is his sure familiarity with the proper titles of all of the notable persons who are mentioned in his pages. This was by no means an easy feat in his day as it would be in ours because it was not so simple for him to consult convenient books of reference. Bruce goes on to talk about the fact that not only is Luke geographically spot on at every point where he mentions something geographically without having an atlas in front of him, but that as he addresses the various titles of Roman officials, he does so with absolute perfection. And to give an example of how actually uh, compelling that is, he says it would be like going to Oxford University your very first day on campus and being able to address everyone on faculty and everyone in higher administration by their proper titles. Provost, master, rector, president, 
And, and make, to make it kind of even more impressive, many of the original Roman leaders were moving up the ladder and some of their titles were being changed. And every time that Luke records their titles, he has it exactly right. Never a mistake historically. Let me give you some examples. Uh, in Luke chapter three, verse one, uh, it refers, Luke refers to a person named Lysanias being the tetrarch of Abilene in about AD 27. And for years, scholars pointed to this as evidence that Luke didn't know what he's talking about. Since everybody knows that Lysanias is not the tetrarch, but rather was the ruler of Chalcis half a century earlier. If Luke can't get that basic fact right, then nothing he wrote can be trusted. That was the ar argument. See, your Bible's silly. Luke can't even get that right. Everybody knows who Lysanias is. But then archaeology stepped in, and an inscription was later found from the time of Tiberius, from about A.D. 14 to 37, which names Lysanias as Tetrarch in Abila near Damascus, just as Luke had written. Turns out there had been two government officials named Lysanias. The critics were wrong, and Luke was shown to be right. Let me give you another example. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, Luke makes reference to politarchs. It's a, it's a, it's a term, okay? It's, it's often translated as city officials or city authorities in many modern translations. But the, the term he uses is politarchs, okay? And for a long time, people claimed Luke was wrong again because no evidence of the term politarchs had been found in any ancient Roman documents. However, an inscription was later found on a first century arch that begins like this, quote, in the time of the politarchs. Dot, dot, dot. You can go to the British Museum and see it for yourself. And since then, lo and behold, more than 35 inscriptions have been found that mention politarchs. And several of these are in Thessalonica from the same period Luke was referring to. Once again, the critics were proven wrong and the Bible was shown to be right. It's just a couple examples. Literally, there were pages of examples that fit like this, where critics said, ah, see, the Bible's wrong, it quotes this thing, and then all, all of a sudden, archaeology says, wait a second, oops, Luke was right, we found it, here it is, all right? What about, what about John? What about John's gospel, okay? Uh, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, records a story about how Jesus healed an invalid by the pool of Bethesda. There's a place called the pool of Bethesda, and John provides the detail that the pool had five Porticos. If you don't know what a portico is, I guess it's like a, a columned, like columned porches or walkways. Walkways with kind of columns, okay? And for a long time, people cited this as an, as an example of the inaccuracy of the Bible because no such place had ever been found. What do you think happened? Yeah. More recently, the pool of Bethesda has been excavated. Oops, we found it. Here we go. It lies about 40 feet below ground, and sure enough, there were exactly five porticos, just as John had described. Once again, critics proven wrong, the Bible proven right. Now, I want you to bear in mind this the force of this argument, because, because there are all kinds of people today saying things like, see, the Bible can't be trusted because blah, 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 blah. And this is not new. This has happened over the thousands of years, they go, oh, see, the Bible can't be trusted because there's no pool of Bethesda. And then, oh, wait a second, oh, time out, sorry, our bad. I guess there is a pool of Bethesda. You're fools to believe the Bible. It talks about a place that doesn't even exist, man. You're, you're fools. Oh, wait a second. Our bad. 
And you have other discoveries, just, just in the, the Gospel of John, things like the Pool of Siloam mentioned in John chapter 9, verse 7, that they said it wasn't there, and lo and behold, archaeology found it. Or Jacob's Well mentioned in John chapter 4, verse 12, same story, it's not there. Oh, here it is. Uh, what about the probable location of the stone pavement near the Jaffa Gate where Jesus appeared before Pilate? John chapter 19, verse 13. Even Pilate's own identity we've confirmed now through archaeology and historical record. Record All of these, these are just a sample. This is just a small thumbnail sample of the depth of evidence that's there where people are saying, no, see, the Bible, well, hang on a second. These are just a few. These are just a few. There's a mountain of evidence like this. Okay? All of which have lent historical credibility to the Bible, to John's gospel, to Luke's writings. And the more that archaeologists dig into the sands of the Middle East and uncover these treasures, they're not finding mistakes in the Bible. They are constantly bringing confirmation of the historical accuracy of the Bible. Over and over again. Let me give you another example. For, for years, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, often called the Pentateuch, Scriptures threw every assault they could at them and said things like this. This was the sophisticated argument of the day. Well, there wasn't even the use of language and letters that would allow someone like Moses to write the Pentateuch at that time. You guys are foolish. Like, this is crazy. This must have been written later and just looks old because there wasn't even the use of language. And not only... Have archaeologists now discovered that not simply, yes, Moses would have been able to write at that time using the language of the day, but they've discovered that there was actually a fully functioning postal system in that part of the world and that people were writing and exchanging letters to one another. There's never been a book written in antiquity with the historical accuracy of the Bible and none so challenged and proven correct over and over again as the Bible has. Over and over again, the Bible has proven to be historically accurate. Let me give you reason number five. So why do we believe the Bible is the word of God? Well, number one, because of the direct claims of the Bible. Number two, the perfect unity of the Bible. Number three, the reliable transmission of the Bible. Number four, the historical accuracy of the Bible. And here's number five, the scientific accuracy of the Bible. The prevailing thought is that science and faith don't mix. That to be a person of faith, you must be anti-science. Or to be a person of science, you must be anti-faith. But this is completely erroneous thinking. Now, persons of science may have a bias against faith. And persons of faith may, may be against science. But science and faith in and of themselves are not opposed to one another. They are not mutually exclusive, as we are trained to believe. First of all, it never was this way historically. Some of the greatest scientific discoveries were pioneered by people of faith who engaged in the exploration of the natural world with a sense of wonder as a means of understanding more about God and his good creation. Let me give you some quotes. Joseph H. Taylor. I probably have all these quotes in your notes, I think. 
I may have him. Follow along with me. Joseph H. Taylor, who is he? Well, he's a guy who received the 1993 Nobel Prize in Physics for his discovery of the first known binary pulsar. Sounds like a real intellectual slouch to me. He said this, quote, a scientific discovery is also a religious discovery. There is no conflict between science and religion. Our knowledge of God is made larger with every discovery we make about the world. How about Albert Einstein? You ever heard of him? He said this, quote, the more I study science, the more I believe in God, end quote. What a stupid guy. Well, to believe that, we believe in God, how stupid. Yeah, Einstein's stupid. You hear how stupid you sound when you say Einstein's stupid? <laughs> and here's another quote from Einstein. I want to know how God created this world. I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts, the rest are details. Wow. That's Albert Einstein. Well, how about Lord William Kelvin, who was noted for his theoretical work on thermodynamics? He said this, I believe that the more thoroughly science is studied, the further it does take us from anything comparable to atheism. Good. How about Sir Isaac Newton, who's widely regarded to have been the greatest scientist the world has ever known? He said this, quote, God created everything by number, weight, and measure. Here's another Sir Isaac Newton quote. In the absence of any other proof, the thumb alone would convince me of God's existence. <laughs> How about Charles Darwin, the man who popularized the theory of evolution? He says this, quote, the question of whether there exists a creator and ruler of the universe has been answered in the affirmative by some of the highest intellects that have ever existed, end quote. So let's just do away with this silly idea that science and faith are mutually exclusive. That to be a person of faith, you must be anti-science. That to be a person of science, you must be anti-faith. That's rubbish. A second and related common thought is that science itself is somehow omnipotent and impervious to error. Many people think science is perfect and can never be challenged, that it's always accurate and completely irrefutable, that it explains everything. But that's not true at all. There are many times when the quote-unquote undisputed science has been proven wrong. And there, are, and there are many things that science can't account for. One of my favorite interactions, I was going to share some of this, but just for time's sake, we can't. But one of my favorite interactions is from a guy named Dr. William Lane Craig, uh, kind of in a debate with a guy named Dr. Peter Atkins, who is saying, Peter Atkins is the atheist, and he's saying, do you deny that science is omnipotent? <laughs> science is omnipotent. You hear that? Like, it's all powerful. He's, he, he goes, yeah, of course I deny that science, it's not omnipotent. And he goes, then what can't science account for? He goes, great question. Let me give you five things. Boop, boop, boop. And, he, and he interacts with that. The last of which being science. He says science itself is predicated upon assumptions that we haven't proven. Science can't prove science. The fact is science is great and I love science. But it's not omnipotent are without error. And the scriptures, contrary to popular belief, are not anti-science. 
In fact, the Bible has proven to be scientifically accurate time and time again, many times proving to be accurate on an issue long before the science was. Let me give you just a few examples. The heaven, there's space, and the earth, there's matter. Verse 2 says, and the Spirit of God moved, there's motion, the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. In the first two sentences, the first two verses of the Bible, we have a scientifically accurate statement that accounts for the existence of everything in the universe. Time, power, space, matter, and motion, all contained in the first two verses of the Bible. Let me give you another example. For many years, scientists said that we could number the stars in the heavens. We could count them. We could know. Hipparchus, who wrote two centuries before Christ, as he looked up into the sky and counted the stars, he said that in the whole universe there are 1,022 stars. That's Hipparchus, okay? And then along comes Ptolemy, four centuries later, that's two centuries after Christ now, and he said, no, you're wrong, you miscounted. There are 1,056 stars in the sky. I counted them, I was really meticulous, you miscounted, it's 1,056 stars. Stars. 1,500 years later, a man named Johannes Kepler accounted for 1,055 stars. He says, up, oh, you counted one too many. There's 1,055. And listen to this. This was the accepted science, the standard of the day. There are 1,055 stars. We know this because Kepler said so. Until... In 1610, Galileo invented the telescope and he put it up to his eye and he looked into the sky above and what he saw brought him to his knees. That there is an inestimable number of stars in the heavens. And in fact, they tell us that there are a thousand million billion stars and those are only the ones that we can even begin to get a view of. That's 10 to the 26th power But what did the Bible say all along? Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 22. I could have given you three or four other verses that say the same thing, but let's pick this one. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant. He said, the host of heaven, the stars of heaven, they're without number. There is an inestimable, inestimable number of stars in that sky. So you think 1,055? <laughs> I'm saying without number. And lo and behold, who agrees with the Bible now? Science. The Bible is never catching up with the science. The science is frequently catching up with the Bible. Let me give you another example. How about the fact that the earth is round? Right? How about the fact that the earth is, that's a simple fact, right? Simple fact that the earth is round. And yet it was science, the standard science of the day that said, if you sail out to the Straits of Gibraltar, you're going to go over the edge because the world is flat. I mean, just look around, buddy. Round? I don't think so. And yet... 2,700 years ago, Isaiah recorded this in chapter 40, verse 22. It is he, God, who sits above the what? The circle of the earth. And that word circle, when you look it up, it's very important what type of circle they're talking about. Because there's circle like a frisbee that's still kind of flat and you can fall off of it. 
And then there's circle like a sphere, like a globe, like a ball. And the word that's used there is sphere. It is God who sits above the sphere, the circle, the ball of the earth. How did Isaiah know that? Because holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's what the scripture tells us. He knew because God is the author of the sacred text. Let's give you another example because I really, because this point is challenged over and over again. So let's just keep rolling, okay? You good with that? How about the fact that the earth is suspended in space, right? For many years, it was believed by, listen to this, because this is mind-blowing, okay? When we talk about, oh, science is omnipotent, never wrong and impervious to error, okay? For many years, it was believed by the most educated people that the earth rested on the shoulders of Atlas, And that pacified people until someone said, well, what's Atlas standing on? And someone said, well, Atlas is standing on an elephant. And someone said, I wish I was making this up. I wish I was making this up. And someone said, cool, like what's the elephant standing on? Right? And they said, oh, the elephant is standing on a sea of snakes. This was the belief by the most educated people. And on and on and on it went. Oh, Atlas and an elephant and a sea of snakes and on and on and on ad infinitum. Yet, what did the Bible say? Glad you asked. Job chapter 26, verse 7. He, God, stretches out the north over the void that is empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Hangs the earth on nothing. Intellect, I want you to hear this because intellectuals used to laugh at the Bible for statements like this. They would point to that and go, you see how stupid your Bible is? He hangs the earth on nothing, buddy? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yet Job was right. How could Job know that? How could Job possibly know when all the intellectuals of the day said, oh no, the earth is on the shoulders of Atlas, who's on an elephant, who's on a sea of snakes, no, 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 everybody knows that. Your Bible's ridiculous. How could Job know that? Because the Bible is the inspired word of the living God. Let me give another example. How about air currents and the evaporation process? The fact that water rises out of the sea, that the wind blows, and it's suspended up in the cloud, and it comes over the land, and the cloud releases water, and it comes down onto the ground in the form of rain, and in some places it goes into streams and rivers and flows back out into the sea. It's the water cycle and air currents, right? Evaporation up in the cloud, rain, streams and rivers, flows into the sea again, and we have this whole cycle. So it says, man, streams and rivers run there, but the, earth, but the sea is never full. How does that happen? Oh, wait, evaporation. We discovered this whole cool thing called evaporation. Yet the Bible records this whole cycle long before it was ever discovered by man. Let me give you three verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. 
The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. We knew nothing. The Bible said this when we knew nothing about air currents. And we knew nothing about evaporation and let me just read this to you. Job chapter 26, verse 8. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split under them. Job 36, 27 and 28. For he draws up the drops of water, and they distill his mist in rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. This whole air current and water cycle process and evaporation and clouds and rain and streams into the ocean... This whole thing was detailed in the scriptures long before science ever discovered it. Do you know how many scientific discoveries were actually pioneered because someone read something in the scriptures and said, hmm, let me test that. Let me give you another one. I'm just gonna, I want to drive this one home. I want to drive this one home because this idea is rubbish that science and faith don't, don't mix, Okay. How about the great biological truth about the importance of blood in our body's mechanism? The fact that we need blood, okay? That's obvious to us now, but that's only been fully understood in recent years. Up until 120 years ago, just 120 years ago, sick people were bled to get the bad blood out of them. And many died because of this practice. Why? Because if you lose your blood, you lose your life. We know that now, we would laugh at any other idea, and yet up until 120 years ago, the medical science said, oh, they got bad blood, let's let all their blood out. (laughs) Brought people right to the brink of death. Oh, we better stop doing that. And many died. But that was the accepted medical science of the day. There's bad blood, get the bad blood out. Yet, what did the Bible say the whole time, thousands of years ago? Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. 3,000 years ago, the Bible declared that blood is the source of life, and if you let all the blood out, you lose your life. Up until 120 years ago, we didn't believe that. Here's another example. Only in recent years has science discovered that everything we see is composed of invisible atoms. Okay? And yet, long ago in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, we were told that the things we see were made of things that are not visible. That's what Hebrews 11, verse 3 says. Write that down and look it up later. Everything, science says, everything we see, ah, we know now. We have discovered everything that we see is composed of invisible atoms. Right on, man, good job. Hebrews 11, chapter 3 said that long, 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 long time ago. Everything we see is composed of things that you can't see. (laughs) On and on. I I mean, literally, even what I'm giving you now, it's like a flood. It's like, this is just a sample. This is just a sample. How about the book of Leviticus and all the laws of sanitation? The importance of washing your hands and running water to prevent the spread of sickness. <laughs> when doctors used to put their hands in bowls of water, sick patient who has a disease, right? How long ago was that? Probably in some of our lifetime. 
Take it and put her hands in bowls of water and go to the next patient. And then, what happened to that patient? They got sick too. I don't understand. Well, you just traveled. The germs just traveled. And yet, all along, the Bible said, yeah, wash your hands in running water. Cleanse yourself before you pass this on to somebody else. <sighs> How about blood clotting in infants? Here's a silly example. Blood clotting in infants has now been shown to reach its peak on the eighth day. And after that, it drops. And all along, the scripture said, circumcise your children on the eighth day. You know, that's circumstantial. I go, no, that's God. God knows the day at the highest peak of blood clotting. It says, circumcise your children on the eighth day. I could give you many, 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 many more examples. The Bible speaks of many things before science ever discovered them. How about ocean currents? Okay, the fact that there are currents in the ocean. The Bible talked about that before science ever discovered it. How about ocean springs and deep sea thermal vents? That is water that comes up from the deep sea. We used to think, scientists used to think, oh, the ocean is only fed by the rivers and streams. No, now we found out that what the Bible said all along was true. There are deep sea vents. There are springs in the deep and deep sea thermal vents. How about the fact that the ocean floor contains deep valleys and mountains when the science thought, no, the, the ocean floor must be flat. Nope, the Bible was true. Again, deep Valleys and mountains. How about the laws of quarantine or the law of entropy or the first and second laws of thermodynamics or the fact that each star is different or that light moves or that air has weight and on and on, all of which are spoken of in the Bible before science ever figured it out. And because we're specifically addressing the scientific accuracy of the scriptures themselves, we haven't even begun to touch the argument from the natural world, which points to the creator. Take, for example, the apparent fine-tuning of the universe. Let me explain what I mean, okay? One of the most striking discoveries of modern science has been that the laws and constants of physics unexpectedly work together in an extraordinary way to make the universe habitable for life. This is what is known as the anthropic principle, okay? Now stay with me. It's saying that there are certain constants which must be met in the universe, these, these things must be absolutely constant. Otherwise, life never has a chance. Okay? Take gravity, for instance. Physicist Robin Collins said that gravity is fine-tuned to one part and a hundred million, billion, 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 billion. Gravity is fine-tuned to that fine, that precise of a measurement. So that constant, which represents the energy density of space, please track with me, that constant, which represents the energy density of space, is as precise as if you threw a dart from space and hit a bullseye on Earth that's just a trillionth of a trillionth of an inch in diameter. That's how precise that one measurement is. The gravity has to measure exactly that or no life. Or imagine, imagine this way, because this was probably the most helpful analogy for me. Imagine a ruler spanning from here to the moon, okay, with its inch markers and centimeter markers, okay? Imagine a ruler that spans from here to the moon, and that constant must be calibrated to the exact centimeter marker, or life is not possible. One centimeter further, one centimeter earlier, and life is not possible. Now, that's one. Experts tell us that there are more than 30 to 40 of these cosmological constants, including the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the electromagnetic force, and so many others, 
all of which must be perfectly calibrated to where they're at or we never exist. Even Christopher Hitchens, a famous atheist who passed away a few years ago, conceded the force of this argument. And he acknowledged that there's a lot of evidence here which you cannot just ignore. He said this, it's the best argument we come up against from the other side. When he says we, he's talking about other atheists like him who debate Christians. He says, when it comes to people asking us, what's the best argument you face from the other side, from people who believe in a designer or a creator? He says, the best argument is this. He says, you have to spend time thinking about it and working on it. It's not a trivial argument. We all say that, end quote. So to get away from this idea of, oh man, our universe is so unique, we have to have all these constants and they, they appear to be fine-tuned to specific one centimeter off in either direction and no life and it has to be all of them. If one of them is off, the whole thing can put. Which is fine-tuned to create life. To get away from that and make our universe seem less unique, some have adopted a multiverse theory which says that there are an infinite number of universes that we ha just haven't found yet. And surely, in an infinite number of universes, there's bound to be another one and a planet on that with the fine-tuning required to sustain life. Now, we can't prove that. It's not observable, testable, or repeatable, but that's our theory now because uh, what else do we do to describe that our universe is so unique and appears to be finely tuned for life? Oh, there must be an infinite number of universes and we're not that unique. We just haven't found them yet. We'll find them someday. As if even finding those disproves the existence of God. And doesn't just prove that his creation is more vast and expansive than we realized. In regards to this idea, this multiverse theory, in regards to this fine-tuning of the universe, Stephen Hawking, who's a theoretical physicist, cosmologist, and someone who's considered to be perhaps the world's most brilliant atheist, says this, quote, A bottom-up approach to cosmology either requires one to postulate an initial state of the universe that is carefully fine-tuned Listen, as if prescribed by an outside agency, <laughs> or it requires one to invoke the notion of eternal inflation, a mighty speculative notion to the generation of many different universes, which prevents one from predicting what a typical observer would see. He essentially says this, what we can see and study points to a universe that has been fine-tuned by an outside agency. Or maybe multiple universes which we can't observe or study. <laughs> Does that sound more like science or faith to you? Sounds like that guy has some faith. Let me give you a couple more quotes from people who are philosophically committed to atheism, to a worldview which excludes even the possibility of God. And yet they're in this field searching the natural world, okay? Richard Dawkins, an evolutionary biologist, famous atheist, author of a book called The God Delusion, which I read and it only strengthened my Christianity. He said this, quote, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. End quote. Did you catch that? Please tell me you're listening. He says, oh, biology, when I study biology, everything appears to have been designed for a purpose. <laughs> Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. 
Wow. Romans 1 tells us that we are going to be without excuse because God has revealed himself to us through the natural world, through his creation, but that we suppress that truth and we exchange it for a lie. That he has revealed himself to us through the natural world, but we don't like that, so we suppress it, we exchange it for a lie, and you see that in this quote. Everything has the appearance of having been designed for a purpose, but no. Suppress that, exchange it. How about Francis Crick? Also committed to a no-God theory. He's a biologist and neuroscientist. He said this, quote, please pay attention to this. See the faith in his statement? <laughs> quote, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see has not been designed, but rather evolved, end quote. He's like, guys, you're going to have to constantly keep this in mind because as you encounter the evidence and the fact, it's going to appear to be designed. It really looks like somebody tinkered with this thing and kind of made it exactly this right way for the, for the possibility of life. And you just have to keep reminding yourself that it's not. Just stay committed to your philosophical premise in regard in the face of all kinds of contrary evidence. You must work at this. Constantly keep in mind. Work at this to stay committed to your philosophy in the, in the face of what appears to be overwhelming evidence of intentional design. Do you understand that that kind of thinking, that worship of science that clings to your ideology or your philosophical prejudice in the presence of such contradictory evidence, that kind of dogmatic devotion has far more in common with blind religion than many unbelievers are willing to admit. You're just, I, I don't have the evidence, but I'm just philosophically committed to my atheism. That even when the evidence points towards design, I go, nope, can't be that. Can't be that. I'm devoted to my faith. The deal is the Bible has always been ridiculed and challenged by the secular intellectuals of the day. And yet over and over and over and over again, the Bible has been shown to be scientifically accurate. Number six, and man, I know I'm over time. And I got to do this, but this is so important. Are you guys okay? Can we do number six? Okay. The fulfilled prophecies of the Bible. The fulfilled prophecies of the Bible. This, to me, is one of the most compelling evidences of the supernatural origin of the scriptures. Unique among all books ever written, the Bible accurately foretells specific events in detail many years, sometimes centuries before they occur. Okay? Now listen to this, uh, man, because this is mind-blowing. There are approximately 2,500 prophecies in the pages of the Bible. And of those 2,500 prophecies, about 2,000 of them have been fulfilled already to the letter. To the letter, without error. The odds for all of these prophecies having been fulfilled by chance, without error, is less than 1 in 10 to the 2,000th power. That's a 1 with 2,000 zeros after it. The remaining 500 or so prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled, all of them deal with what Scripture calls the events of the last days or the end times. So 2,500, roughly 2,500 prophecies in the Bible, more than 2,000 of them have been fulfilled already to the letter. No other book can make this claim. None, not even close, okay? The remaining 500 or so all deal with the last days and end times, and we're given signs of what that's going to 
be like, okay? Let me give you just a few of the prophecies regarding the Messiah. So the Old Testament says, hey, God's gonna send a Messiah. He's gonna send a savior. And then it predicted specific things about that Messiah, okay? Uh, This is just a sample list. This is not even close to an exhaustive list. This is, again, a small sample, uh, though it may not feel small. Scripture predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would come from the line of Abraham and would be a descendant of Isaac and Jacob, that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, that he would be heir to King David's throne, that the Messiah would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, that the Messiah would spend a season in Egypt, that a massacre of children would happen at the Messiah's birthplace, that a messenger would prepare the way for the Messiah, that the Messiah would be rejected by his own people, that the Messiah would be a prophet, that he would be declared to be the son of God, that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene, as if he's from Nazareth, that the Messiah would speak in parables, that he would be sent to heal the brokenhearted, that the Messiah would perform miracles, that he would be called king, that he would be praised by little children, that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and that that money would be used to buy a potter's field to bury poor foreigners. How specific is that prophecy? Okay, That the Messiah would be falsely accused, that he would be silent before his accusers, that he would be spit on and struck, that he would be hated without cause, that he would be crucified with criminals, that he would be given vinegar to drink, that his hands and his feet would be pierced, that the Messiah would be mocked and ridiculed, that soldiers would gamble for his clothing, that his bones would not be broken, that the Messiah would pray for his enemies, that soldiers would pierce his side, that he would be buried among the rich, and that his grave would be empty. That's just a sampling. That list goes on and on and on. Hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah who was to come. Now, a study was conducted by Professor Peter W. Stoner, which is detailed in a work called Science Speaks, an Evaluation of Certain Christian Evidences. And that study set out to determine the statistical probability of anyone ever fulfilling these prophecies. Okay? They factored for the most conservative estimates. And what do you think the odds are that anyone in history, anyone in history, anyone that's ever lived, would ever fulfill even five of those prophecies? The odds of that happening would be one chance in a hundred million billion. That's millions of times greater than the number of all the people who have ever lived on the earth already. That's five prophecies, okay? What are the odds that someone would fulfill even eight prophecies about the Messiah? The statistical, I'm talking about statistical mathematical probability that anyone ever in history fulfills even eight of these prophecies. That is one in 10 to the 28th power. Let me give you an example of how crazy that is because those numbers are like, "Eh, what is that, okay? This is the same statistics if you filled the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars and you took one and you put a mark on it and you mixed it in with all the others, okay? Then you blindfolded a man at the corner of Texas and you then told him to walk as far as he wanted. He could walk as long as he wanted, as many days as he wanted, wherever he wanted, in whatever direction he wanted, so long as he was in Texas two feet deep with silver dollars and he has one chance to bend over with his blindfold and pick up one silver dollar. The odds that he picks up that marked silver dollar are the same statistical probability that anyone in history ever fulfills even eight prophecies about the Messiah. What do you think the odds are fulfilling 48 prophecies about the Messiah? It's one chance 
in a trillion, 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 trillion. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Some scholars even estimate that the number of prophecies fulfilled by Jesus is already more than 300. And there remains prophecies about what will happen in the last days. Psalm 22 is in your notes, verses 16 through 18. This is in the Old Testament prophesying, speaking from first-person account, but it's a prophecy about what the Messiah would experience and how he would be killed. And he says, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, and they've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, and they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. When you read the New Testament, you see that this was fulfilled perfectly. How was Jesus crucified? How was Jesus killed? Crucifixion. They pierced his hands and his feet. You know what's crazy about that prophecy? He said, that's how the Messiah is going to die. They're going to pierce his hands and his feet. We clearly understand that that's crucifixion nowadays. But this prophecy, Psalm 22, was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented as a form of execution. You may say, well, he, Jesus knew all these prophecies and he arranged to fulfill them himself. Okay, but how could he arrange his ancestry? When, where, and to whom he would be born? Where his parents would take him as an infant? His method of execution? The fact that soldiers would gamble for his clothes or that the tomb would be empty. How could he engineer all of that? You can only engineer your place and time and family of birth if you're God. That's the only one who can do that. So why do we have these predictions in the Old Testament that we see fulfilled in the New Testament and historically affirmed? Why do we see those? Because God is saying, I'm going to prove to you I'm God because I'm going to tell you when, where, and to whom I'm going to send the Messiah and how he's going to be executed and what he's going to do in his life and how he's going to enter Jerusalem and then he's going to fulfill all of them. And the only way anybody could predict all of that is if you're God himself. Man. Man. And this ignores the mountains. We're just talking about the prophecy specifically regarding Jesus. There's other prophecies. There's other prophecies. This ignores the mountain of other prophecies that have been fulfilled. Let me give you just a couple more because these are crazy and we're done. I know we're over. We're so over and everybody's hot. I'm sweating too, okay? (laughs) The scriptures foretold that the ancient Jewish nation would be conquered twice. This is prophecy. So here's what's going to happen. The ancient Jewish nation is going to be conquered twice and that the people would be carried off as slaves each time. First by the Babylonians for a period of 70 years. The Bible was that specific. Okay? And then by a fourth world kingdom, which we know as Rome. And both of those prophecies were fulfilled. Conquered both times, taken there for that exact amount of time. And then, and then here we go. Okay, Both fulfilled. And the Jews were scattered and Israel no longer existed as a nation. There was no Israel. And all during that time, Isaiah chapter 66, verses 7 and 8, predicted that Israel would become a nation again. 
after all this time, and that it would happen in one day. It says, can a nation be born in a day? That's what Isaiah 66 said. It says, yet the nation of Israel will be born again in one day. It was prophesied 3,000 years ago. It says, you're going to be taken captive once for 70 years, and then again, and you're going to be scattered, and there will be no Israel. And then in one day, here's what the Bible said, in one day, the nation of Israel will be born again. And then for 2,900 years, that prophecy remained unfulfilled. Israel did not exist. There was no Israel. 1940, there was no Israel. 1941 and 42, 43 and 44, 45, there was no Israel. 1946, there was no Israel. Unfulfilled prophecy. And skeptics go, look at that. There's no, all these prophecies about Israel, there's no Israel, bro! <laughs> Then on May 14th, 1948, a United Nations mandate expired, ending British control of the land, and Israel declared its independence, and its independence was acknowledged by other nations, including the USA, who issued a statement on the same day recognizing Israel's sovereignty as a nation, and Israel was declared to be a united and sovereign nation for the first time in 2,900 years, and it happened in one day. May 14th, 1948, just as the Bible had prophesied thousands of years earlier. That is in my grandparents' lifetime. 3,000-year-old major biblical prophecy fulfilled in my grandparents' lifetime. Let me give you one more, because it's related. When the disciples asked Jesus to reveal the signs of his coming and of the end times and of the end of the age, he told them in Luke chapter 21, verses 24 through 28, write that down. Luke 21, 24 through 28. Luke chapter 21, verses 24 through 28. He told them, he says, here's a sign. First of all, it's a convergence of signs. When you see all these things going on, here's what's going to happen. But then he says this. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles. That is, anyone who is non-Jewish will be trampled by the Gentiles. The city of Jerusalem will. Until the time of the Gentiles comes to an end, and then Jesus promised to return. The temple was destroyed in AD 70 by Titus and the Roman legions. And for centuries after that, Gentile, non-Jewish kings and kingdoms have exercised complete control over the temple mount and the old city of Jerusalem. Then... In June 1967, that's in my mother's lifetime, the Six-Day War concluded with Israel in control of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount for the first time since A.D. 70. The time of the Gentiles had come to an end. And Israel now controlled Jerusalem again, just like the Bible prophesied over 3,000 years ago. Just like Jesus said 2,000 years ago. And according to Jesus, the Jewish repossession of Jerusalem was a sign that his return would closely follow. Stay awake, church. Stay awake. 2,500 prophecies in the Bible, 2,000 have been fulfilled to the letter, at least two major biblical prophecies that are tied to the return of Jesus fulfilled in my grandparents' and parents' lifetime. 3,000-year-old prophecies. Oh, the Bible's rubbish. Really? Really? 
can't be trusted. Really? Seems like it's more trustworthy than any of our word. Yeah. Let's not ignore biblical prophecy. So we dismiss the Bible, but to do so at this point, you have to work really hard to explain away an awful lot of history and science and fulfilled prophecy. And at that point, you're working harder to disbelieve than you would to just follow the evidence. So we believe that the Bible is God's word because of the direct claims of the Bible, the perfect unity of the Bible, the reliable transmission of the Bible, the historical accuracy of the Bible, the scientific accuracy of the Bible, and the fulfilled prophecies of the Bible. And we'll give you three or four more reasons next week. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for the authority and veracity of the scriptures that you have given us, Father God. And I pray that you would deepen and strengthen in us a commitment to your word. That when you promise to be our comforter, we can take that to the bank because you fulfilled your other promises, God. That when you promise to return, we can take that to the bank because your promise to come the first time was fulfilled, God. That every beautiful and precious promise you make to us in Scripture, we can lay hold of it and cling to it with our very lives because it is your word and because you keep your word. And we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.